Doug, Doug Senior, good to see you all. Liz, Jen, Natasha, Brock, and my lovely wife, Tasha. I think I hit everybody in the room. Amen. Amen. <laughs> the Lord knows each of us by name. And this is a beautiful day. This is truly the day that the Lord has made. And we want to rejoice and we want to be glad in it. Amen. And I heard that uh, you guys are still doing coffee and convo out on the block. I was so encouraged by that. Amen. I also heard that there was a few hiccups. Now, of course, Brock and Natasha are going to be ready to react because we went through our fair share of hiccups on the block as well. So I just want to let you know um, these things are common to man. Right. <laughs> um, but the Lord makes a way. So let me pray and then we're going we're gonna to dive in and look to God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do give you all the glory, praise, and honor because it's due your name. God, you're holy. There's none like you, none beside you. And Lord, that you would call us your children is absolutely amazing. Uh, so God, we pray now that you would give us eyes to behold the marvelous truths that are in your word, that you would give us ears that we would hear today with faith and respond not as hearers but doers of your word yes, and that our hearts would have a deeper affection and love for our savior mm. we pray you would do this by your power in jesus name amen amen, amen. so we're going to be looking at psalm 99 psalm 99 it's in the old testament this is a psalm of david and this begins the reading of god's holy word the lord reigns let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king is in his might, loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statutes that he gave them. O oh Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God and worship at his holy mountain for the Lord our God is holy. Amen. This is God's word. Good Amen. Amen. So quick question for you guys. Just off the break. One question for you is what is your motive for worship? What is your motive for worshiping God? Do you worship God just for what he's done for you? Or do you worship God for who he is? Because our God is holy. R.C. Sproul, he has a book called The Holiness of God. And in that book, there's a quote that I want to read because I thought it was a powerful quote that I think sets this up nicely. R.C. Sproul says in his book on the holiness of God, he says, we tend to have mixed feelings about holy. There is a sense in which we are at the same time attracted to it but also repulsed by it. Something draws us toward it, while at the same time, we want to run away from it. We can't seem to decide which way we want it. 
part of us yearns for the holy, while part of us despises it. We can't live with it, and we can't live without it. R.C. Sproul had a way of putting words. And this is the question again. What is your motive for worship? And the big idea of this text that we're going to look at today is let the beauty and the holiness, the beauty of holiness of God motivate you to worship. Let the beauty of the holiness of God motivate you to worship. And we'll look at that in uh, verse one to three, where we see the awe of the holy king. In verse four to five, we'll see the righteous act of the holy king. And in verse six to nine, we'll look at the mercy, the faithfulness and the forgiveness of the holy king. Verse one, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. So David wrote this psalm. He starts off with this covenantal name of God. In your Bible, it should have capital letters L-O-R-D. When that translates into the uh, your Bible, it's not a generic name for God, but it is God's holy name, Yahweh, that he revealed to Moses and the people of Israel. So this right here was all based on relationship. God has always desired to have a relationship with his people. David knew God and God knew David. David knew God's name. And there's a lot to a name. You think about a husband and a wife. There's only names that they know that are intimate for one another that they call each other. This is how David responded to God. It was an intimate knowledge. To first truly worship God, we need to know God. Not in a generic sort of way, but personally to know our God. So do you know God? If we ask what is the motive for your worship, the very first thing you must do is know God. Not just in knowledge about him, because facts alone do not make for a relationship. You can say you know a lot about Barack Obama, but you try to go up to Barack like you know him like that. That's not going to happen. Do you know God? Not just based on feelings or experiences of how you think God should be, but because uh, not based on things you think he should be, because feelings and experiences can deceive you. You want to know him based on how he has revealed himself in scripture, the objective truth of his word and how he has revealed himself. But do you know God? Do you know him? And an aspect that David wants to highlight to us is that God is a holy king who we should stand in awe of, who we should bow down and prostrate before because we should always be in awe of this king. Yes, God is knowable and yes, he's intimate. But let's never forget that the Lord is a holy king who reigns. This is a statement of fact that David makes here. This is not a vote for him to be voted in or a vote for him to be voted out. He is the sovereign Lord. Uh, could the reason that some of us get bored with reading the Bible or bored with coming to church, could it be that we are no longer in awe of God? That's like a person who goes to the Grand Canyon and he sees all this beauty and he says, I'm tired of looking at rocks. <laughs> Or goes to California where the incredible redwoods are and say, I don't want to see trees. The only reason someone would typically say these things is because they have become familiar with beauty. And now they call what's beautiful common. And we got to be careful with that because we can do that very same thing 
with God. But this is why I love the Psalms. The Psalms bring back to our remembrance the things that we should focus on. The Psalms are songs, they're poems, they're meant to be sung, and many of them was accompanied by musicians. So David is like the MC that's in a cipher, right? He gathers around and he's like, give me a beat, bring the string instruments, bring the lyres, bring all of these different things so that I can rehearse both with metaphors and with punchlines what's meant to be remembered. And that's what we have here in this song. David is saying here, remember, our God is a holy king. And this is the same king that we see in Psalm 93, 1, that is described as being robed in majesty. And he has put on strength as his belt. And he has established the world and it shall never be moved. This is a picture of that same king. And so clothing in the Old Testament was considered an extension of a person. Uh, we, we, we see that even sort of today, but more so back then, the expression to be robed in majesty or the imagery you think of Isaiah 6, right? Where Isaiah saw the train of God's role in the temple. It filled the temple. This describes the Lord as all majestic, all regal, all imposing, all powerful in his reign. And since his throne was established in eternity past, his reign is secure forever. His reign never ends. This is the holy king God. And how do I know this reign never ends? I read the end of the book. Revelation 4 says John has this vision of the throne room of God. And he says in verse 8 and 9, each of the four living creatures had six wings and were covered with eyes inside and out. And without stopping day or night, they were singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who is, who was and who is to come. The living creatures give glory, honor and thanks to the one who sits on the throne and to the one who lives forever and ever. This king is strong. This king is majestic. This king's throne is secure forever. And not only is this a picture of the king, but this is a picture of a king to be feared, a picture of a king to be in awe of. Verse one continues to say that the Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. And this trembling brings to mind the Exodus. When Moses was given the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, you remember that in Exodus 20, verse 18 and 19. It says that now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled. They stood afar off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. God is holy. And you heard the imagery, the sounds, the sights, the trembling, the fear. This is what David is bringing to mind. And then he doubles down at the last part of verse one. And he says that this king, this king sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. See, this is a verbal picture of the Ark of the Covenant. This is an earthly tabernacle that represents God's presence. The ark was a box, a chest that was made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. And on top of that was a lid that had two cherubim that sat on top of it. It also had rings and poles that were attached for carrying. And no one was to touch this ark except for the designated people, the priest. If anyone would touch this ark that represented God's presence, instantly they would die. 
And we see that with Uzzah when we just heard the reading in 2 Samuel. This ark represented God's presence. And these cherubim that God sits enthroned on are angels who worship God day and night, night and day. And they do his bidding and they magnify his power and they magnify his holiness. And when you think about cherubim, don't think about the chubby babies that you see in cartoons. This is not that. But take your mind back to the first mention of cherubim in Genesis chapter three, verse 24. It says after he drove Adam and Eve out of the garden this is after they sinned, God placed on the east side of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. These were fearsome creatures that caused men to fall down in fear every time that they would encounter one of these angels. Brothers and sisters, our God sits enthroned upon them in absolute power and absolute authority. So if the symbolic presence of God was represented in the Ark of the Covenant and that symbol was something to be handled with holy care, to the point that those that violate are dealt with swiftly, how much more for the reality of our God? God is holy and awesome beyond our imaginations. And the truth is, when, God, when the word says, let the people tremble, there are times when we don't do that. But God, but God, through his word, commands, let the people tremble, but also we see, let the earth quake. And the same way that the people are to tremble is the same way the earth should shake. The same people who give glory to Mother Nature will see her quake before the king. The same people who give glory to the universe will see it quake before the king. All that was created, all of creation will quake before this king. In verse two, we see that the Lord is great in Zion and he is exalted above all peoples. God is great and there is no one above him, both in Zion among his people, as well as the peoples of the world. He is sovereign over creatures in heaven and he is sovereign over people on earth. He is to be exalted. He is to be lifted up. And therefore, verse three says, let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. So our response to an awesome king, to an awesome God is awesome praise. There is a story in Luke chapter 19, verse 38 on the reaction of Jesus receiving such praise. Jesus was coming into a town and he was riding on a donkey. And this was a journey to the cross. But we also know the other side, that this was the king's triumphal entry, which was prophesied in Zechariah. And as Jesus comes into the town of Bethany, the whole entire crowd, all the people throughout the towns and villages began to rejoice and to praise Jesus in a loud voice saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And as the people are laying down their cloaks and spreading palm branches and praising and singing to Jesus, the Pharisees in the crowd are mad. Not just mad, but they mad mad. They heard the people's praise and they heard their worship that was directed at Jesus. And they said to Jesus, teacher, tell them to stop. And here's what Jesus said. I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. 
And if they keep quiet from praising me, he says the very stones will cry out. And what is fascinating here is Jesus lets the Pharisees know that praise should be encouraged, not suppressed. The people are expressing great joy and that joy is so appropriate. That joy is so necessary that if they did not express praise, it would be appropriate and necessary for an inanimate object to fill that void. Mm. Don't let the rocks cry out for you. Jesus is the great and awesome name that is worthy of all praise. So why praise? It says there in the text because his name is great and his name is holy. Awesome. It is great because of his great fame, the great fame of his name. The reputation of the Lord goes before him. For example, you remember the Gibeonites who heard what the Lord had done at Ai with Joshua and the Israelites. They didn't even have to fight. Right. Joshua was marching around seven times doing this, did not even have to fight. Why? Because the name of the Lord, when they heard the Israelites were coming in Joshua, chapter nine, verse eight, it says that. We are your servants. Right in that moment, they went from enemies to servants. And Joshua said, who are you and where do you come from? And they said to him from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord, your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. The fame of his name. His name is great and greatly to be praised. And what about the account of Queen Sheba? She was a foreign queen who was living large and in charge. And she was from a distant land. And it's believed that she lived as far as Ethiopia or possibly Arabia and heard the name and fame of the Lord. In 1 Kings chapter 10, it picks up the story where it says in verse 1, the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. She came to test him with hard questions. And after a series of questioning uh, and getting her answers, she was so impressed with his answers, his hospitality and his God, that in verse six, it says that she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Mm. And she gave the name of God praise. In verse 9 he said, blessed be Yahweh your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king so that you may execute justice and righteousness. So why praise? Because God's name is great and his reputation precedes him. But not only does David speak about his great name, but he also says that his name is awesome. And in ancient times, a person's name was much more than just an identifier or a title. The name expressed a person's nature and their attributes. So God's name represents his character and it represents his authority. So you think about the names El Shaddai, right? He is the all-sufficient, all-powerful God. Jehovah Jireh, he is our provider. Not just provides, but he is our provider. Or what about the good shepherd? The shepherd who leads, who guides, who protects. He's the lamb of God who lays down his life for us. Jehovah Rapha, he is the Lord who heals. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord, our peace, even in the midst of chaos and drama. El Roy, 
the God who sees. And in his seeing, he cares for you. See, the person of God in the name of God cannot be separated. Mm-hmm. Psalm 910 says, those who know your name trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. So for my Christian brothers and sisters, are you trusting in the name of the Lord today? Or better yet, are you trusting in the name of the Lord for tomorrow when you're at work? What name do you need reminding of tomorrow at work? What name do you need reminding of regarding raising your children or praying for a loved one who may be sick or in need of salvation? Let the names of the Lord strengthen your faith and lead you to greater praise and worship of your God. Amen. For my friends who are not Christian, the name you need to trust in is the name Jesus. Right Acts 4.12 says salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven by which man, woman, boy or girl can be saved. Romans 10, 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that name is Jesus. There really is something about that name, Jesus. (laughs) If I could sing, call on him in repentance and faith. And there's a song called Crown Him with Many Crowns. And in one section, it does say, crown him the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave and rose victorious in the strife. For those who came to save, he came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. Jesus is more than a miracle worker. He is more than a great teacher. Jesus is the savior of sinners. And that's what his name means, and that's what he does. Oh, praise his great and awesome name. In the last part of verse three, it says, let them praise your great and awesome name. Why? Because he is holy. And here the psalmist brings to our attention again to the awe of his holiness, not just his moral purity. And that's what God is. He's morally pure. But his transcendence, his otherness, how far above God is from every creation, everything that he has created. He is holy in every attribute that describes him, his holy goodness, his holy grace, as well as his holy justice and his holy wrath. This is the awesome beauty of his holiness. And in verse four and five, we move from the awe of the holiness of a king to his righteous act. And you see in verse four, the king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. See, this king is strong and he has power and he has authority to act and to do what he pleases. And look what he loves and look what he does. It says justice and righteousness. Psalm 89, 14 says righteousness and justice are the foundations of God's throne. This is what undergirds God's throne. On one end is righteousness and another end is justice. And this is a wonderful thing when you think about it. But then it's also a frightening thing because no man is righteous. And there's every every man, woman, boy or girl. They can never reach that standard on their own because he's righteous. He must punish sin and the sinner. 
That's bad news. Because every person who ever lived on the face of the earth has sinned, both in thought and in deed. Humanity desperately needs someone who is as righteous and as just as God himself, who is perfect, that can justify us. So we see the results of sin on the news locally within our community here in Congress Heights and Anacostia, PT County, all over with violence and injustice that's taking place. But then we see the results of sin in the news globally that are plaguing different nations. When we think about Israel and Palestine, we think about Russia and, and um, Ukraine. Ukraine, all of these different things that are going on and the list goes on and on. The world needs hope. The world needs justice. The world needs righteousness. And if this life is all that there is, then we're hopeless. But look at the infinite wisdom. Look at the infinite love of God. The good news is there is hope. God has provided a solution. And over 2,000 years ago, the Lord sent his son, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin who lived a life we couldn't. Holy, perfect Righteous. And then he died the death that we should have died because we're sinners. And when he died, he really died. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. But on the third day, he rose with all power, defeating sin, death in the grave. And when he rose, it actually proved that he was the acceptable sacrifice on our behalf. Christ's death satisfied God's righteous requirement. And those who come to faith in Christ are now declared righteous in right standing with this holy God. <laughs> That's awesome. Amen, that is amazing. And God did this in Jacob, as it says in the end of verse four. So with the Old Testament saints, they look forward to the cross and the coming Messiah. And we, the church, look back to the cross and the crucified and risen Messiah, Jesus. This has been God's plan all along from the beginning. But people reject him and the consequences are reflected everywhere we see but 2 corinthians chapter 5 21 says for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of god apart from christ we have no righteousness on our own god sending his son is the most righteous act of the holy king receive him today Believe in him today. In verse five, you say you in verse five, you can almost hear David praising and worshiping God, saying, exalt the Lord, exalt the Lord, our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. David is exhorting God's people in light of all that he's reminded them of to bow before the throne in total submission to this king. And that this is the same exhortation today that we should submit and bow down to this king. Whether it's for the first time today in salvation or whether we need to bow down and surrender our plans, to bow down and surrender our agenda of what we thought we wanted to do with our life, we should surrender and bow to the king in those things. So we've seen the awe of the holy king. We've seen the righteous act of the holy king. And now we turn our attention to the mercy the faithfulness and the forgiveness of the Holy King in verse eight, six to nine. Verse six says Moses and Aaron were among his priests. 
Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. So you think of Moses, you think of Aaron, you think of Samuel. They all served in a priestly type function, right? They were mediators between God and his people. And yet they was extremely weak and flawed individuals. And I don't know about you, but in a way that encourages me. The fact that a high exalted king whose name is great, whose name is awesome, who's holy, would condescend to answer his people when they pray is mind blowing. Mm -hmm. You remember Aaron, he failed as the first priest. As soon as Moses went to the top, he's taking too long. He's like, give me your jewelry. He fashions into a, 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 a calf, a bull or something. And he makes an idol. This is the first priest. And Moses, he failed by striking the rock. When God told him to speak, he struck the rock. This is Moses who spoke face to face with God. He heard God and then disobeyed God. Samuel failed in that his sons did not follow the Lord's instructions. These were men of flesh. And yet when they cried out to God, he graciously answered them. Amen. He didn't give them what they deserved. That's holy mercy. It's something about personal failure and brokenness that readies the repentant heart for true obedience and service. We don't want to get past that. Psalm 51, 17 says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. And this should be encouraging to those who have made mistakes in the past. To those who have idols in their life that have put things before God like money or ministry or relationships or different pleasures. This should encourage the disobedient who have done things that God has said not to do and then have not done things that God said to do. And sometimes we can be like disobedient children in that way, right? You tell your child, yes, you can go outside, but just don't go beyond the fence. What's the first thing they do? They go beyond the fence or they go right up to the fence where they want to obey your command in by law, but not by the spirit, right? Not the spirit of what you're saying. And in many ways, we do the same thing with God. How far can we push the boundaries? Mm. Is that the right heart when you hear when God speaks in that way? How is your heart in these things? How do you respond to God's commands, to God's mercy? Do you continue to push the limits or the boundaries or do you respond with a broken and contrite heart? Brothers and sisters, God will not despise that. Mm. And look how God answered Moses and Aaron in verse seven. It says he answered them in a pillar of the cloud. He spoke to them. He kept his they kept his testimonies and the statues that he gave them. So here we see the fruit of repentance is obedience Right. Aaron and Moses, they kept his testimonies and statutes. And God's response was the pillar being a visible sign that God gave them in front of all the people that he was with them. He appeared in the form of a cloud by day, fire by night, guiding the people through the wilderness. This was the holy faithfulness of God, a memory in their mind that God would never leave them nor forsake them. And here's the incredible thing. The church. We have a greater witness than that. No longer is it a pillar by day or a cloud or a fire by night. But we have God's Holy Spirit within us. 
that is leading us and guiding us. And in Romans 8, 16, it says, bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Not only would God not forsake them, but because those who are in Christ, he will never forsake us. In verse 8, we also see that God forgave them. He says, oh, Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. So David spoke of the Lord's holy mercy towards them, his, his repentant people and his faithfulness despite his people. But God did punish their misdeeds. And this was both for their correction and was also to preserve his holiness. Any good parent does this for their children. And God does this for us, too, out of love and to prove that you are legitimate children. So the discipline that God gives is really for our good. And not only is it for our good, but it also gives us assurance of whose we are. Mm -hmm. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10 and 11 says, for earthly fathers discipline us for a short time as it seemed best for them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good. That we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's a temporary hurt. But that compared to sharing in his holiness is no comparison at all. There is a great assurance in the discipline of the Lord. And that assurance comes in various forms, in correction, in conviction when we sin. But this is the perspective that we ought to take, that God is doing this for our good, for our assurance, and letting us know that we are indeed legitimate children. And when we do that, we can then with a clean heart and with a clear conscience, in verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. And this is the third and the last time the holiness of God is mentioned in these, very, in these nine verses. The repetition of holy three times was a technique that Jews would use to express an intensity. Isaiah witnessed this in Isaiah 6 when he saw the angels around the throne. And what did they do? They cried out, holy, holy, holy three times. These angels were expressing with force and with passion and with intensity the truth of the supreme holiness of God. His holiness is motivation for our worship. See, the text says there, exalt the Lord our God and worship. This means to literally ascribe to him his worth as our God in his holy mercy, in his holy faithfulness, and in his holy forgiveness. John 4, 24 says, uh, Jesus speaking, he tells us that true worshipers, true worshipers worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. That's from the heart and the way that God has instructed us from his word. Yes, worship includes praying and reading God's word with an open and humble and contrite heart. and includes singing and communion and serving and giving and all of those things with the right attitude and with the right heart disposition. But the highest form of praise, the highest form of worship is obedience to him and his word. And we do this by faith, knowing that one day our faith will become sight and we will behold the awe and the beauty of his holiness and worship him at his holy hill.
So I'm going to end with the same quote that I started with from R.C. Sproul in his book on the holiness of God. He says, we tend to have mixed feelings about the holy. There is a sense in which we are at the same time attracted to it and repulsed by it. Something draws us toward it, while at the same time we want to run away from it. We can't seem to decide which way we want it. Part of us yearns for the holy, while part of us despises it. We can't live with it, and we can't live without it. What is your response regarding your motive for worshiping the Lord? Are you in awe of the holy king? Do you recognize the righteous act of this holy king who would dare die for us sinners? And are you thankful for his holy mercy, his holy faithfulness and forgiveness towards us? All of this, David is painting a picture of the beauty of his holiness. Let us pray. Amen. Father, we do give you praise and thanks, God. And we say, like Jesus taught us to pray, our father who art in heaven, indeed, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be your name among the nations. Hallowed be your name among our neighbors. Hallowed be your name, God, in our hearts. Holy Father, in the coming days and weeks, would you give us a bigger view of your majesty and of your holiness? And in your presence, would you give us a right view of ourselves in light of your holiness? God, we praise you when we see this great chasm for your grace and for your mercy and your faithfulness towards us. God, we pray you would continue to make us a holy people, trusting that what you begin in us, you will complete. Oh God, do this for your glory and for your joy, for our joy. And we pray, Lord, that you, knowing that you are both sovereign over the end, but you're also sovereign over the means. So whether that's discipline as a father would discipline his son, whether, Lord, that is conviction by your spirit, Lord, help us to keep this in view, that we have assurance that way, that you are our father and we are your child. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.